the Forward Together podcast from Hollywood Trust with Paul Gosling and Jared Dean. Welcome to the Forward Together podcast. My name is Jared Dean, joined today by Paul Gosling. Hiya, Paul. Hi, Jared. So, Forward Together, as people should know by now, is a podcast produced by Hollywood Trust, a community relations focused organisation based at the heart of Derry. And this is a conversation with a range of people from civic society and political life on increasing the civic voice, how we do that, creating a more shared and integrated society here in Northern Ireland, dealing with the past and the constitutional question. So a series of forward-focused conversations. Paul, for this episode, you met with... Naomi Long, newly elected MEP, still the leader of the Alliance Party, former MP, and on the day I interviewed her, she had resigned as an MLA. Okay, that was a significant event then. Okay, so... As usual, we go through the four issues with each of our people that we're interviewing. And on the civic society question, Naomi talks about a mechanism for engaging with civic society or civil society and I suppose the importance of engaging with civic society. Absolutely. And what I thought was really interesting about what Naomi said is because we are now in the process of the talks about can we resurrect Stormont, she's saying quite clearly, I think, mm. that actually... The strain of civic conversation has to be part of the resurrected structures of governance in Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. We had the Civic Forum many years ago. That died its death. We haven't had anything since then. But I think what Naomi is saying is that for the Alliance Party, at least, the resurrection of some form of civic conversation, perhaps through civic assemblies or something, is going to be in those talks as part of the negotiations. And I think she talks about the value of the civic voice being demonstrated through the civic uh, or the citizens' assembly model uh, in the Republic, especially when it comes to dealing with the difficult issues. Exactly. I think what she's saying is that there are certain issues that you know that they are difficult, but they're not necessarily party political. Mm. And the idea isn't simply to replicate the representative structure that you've got with instalment, mm-hmm. but actually to have a different set of voices coming at things from a different angle than you get from the party political system. Okay, and then moving on to the shared and integrated element of the conversation, I thought it was really interesting that Naomi starts by saying there needs to be a political decision around and a shared and integrated society is actually something that we're working towards. Yeah, and quite a bit of what we hear today is, you know, it is party political on behalf of the Alliance Party. Yeah. And she is saying quite overtly, well, you know, the Alliance Party is getting more votes And that in itself should be putting pressure on the main parties that come from one of the traditions to say, we're getting more votes. So if you want to stop us getting even more votes, then actually you have to go in the same direction we're going towards, which is to demonstrate this commitment to a shared and integrated society. Okay. And key to the shared and integrated societies for Naomi is integrated education and integrated housing. Absolutely. But there's one other thing that Naomi said, which no one else, I think, really has said in these interviews, which is the role of public transport within the the, the, the push towards having a more shared society. And she's evidencing the success of the glider transport system in Belfast, which is 
bringing together West and East Belfast in ways that people feel confident and safe in going to parts of the city that they haven't done before. And I suppose in a way, the parallel there is what we've had in Derry, where we've had the Peace Bridge, yeah. bringing together different parts of the city where I, when I moved here 20 years ago, I would meet people from one side of the river or the other who would talk about the fact they'd never been, or at least not in recent years, to the other side. And I think what the glider is doing in Belfast is the same thing that the Peace Bridge did in Derry, which is to bring communities together by creating a safe mechanism for them to go to other parts of the city. Okay. Well, let's hear your conversation with Naomi now. Uh, straight into it. How do we strengthen civil society? Well, I think that there are a few things I would say about that. I think, first of all, we need to find a role for engaging with civil society. I think that there is a lot of good work that goes on in our communities and as elected representatives we're all very aware and very conscious of that. But I don't think we ever really lived up to the objective of finding a proper mechanism through which those of us who are elected um, members of the community would be able to formally engage with civic society. And so what tends to happen is that we engage with civic society on an ad hoc basis often at their request. It will often be um, through particular interest groups who approach us and ask for meetings or at our request because there's a particular issue um, that's coming up. Or when the assembly is sitting properly, they'll come to committee to brief us on things. But there isn't really a structure for us to properly engage with civic society. And so there isn't really a structure for members of the community who want to get engaged in that process to, to, to buy into. So I think that one of the things that we've been looking at, certainly in terms of the talks and the discussions that we've been having, is how do we get something which is akin to the Civic Forum, which was there originally, but is able to engage with an assembly now that we know how the assembly should function when it's actually working and would actually be a good um, platform for us to engage with. And so that is one of the strands of work that we've been looking at as part of the discussions that are ongoing about getting the assembly restored. So what was wrong with the Civic Forum? I think that for whatever reason it ran out of road. I think it was large and unwieldy in, so in some senses, but I think moreover there wasn't the real commitment from the political side to actually believe that engaging with the wider community would, would bear any fruit. I think what has happened since the Good Friday Agreement, and I've said this to a number of people over the last few years, at the time of the Good Friday Agreement, everyone was involved. So we had a lot of groups around the table in the forum, um, and the forum elections brought a lot of new parties to the table. We had this very open conversation that was going on about how Northern Ireland society would change, and the public were also involved in that conversation. And the civic forum sort of arose from a sense that there needed to be work done with communities as well as at a political level. I think what has happened over time is that politics has become more and more precious about its own position. So what we've had are parties that are, if you like, more focused on their leadership role and less on the engagement side and the, the working with communities to bring um, them on board and to take, if you like, issues that they're concerned about or knowledge that they might have and actually make use of it. But I also think there's been a constriction in the political system too, where we've kind of gone from a situation where we had an inclusive process to one which very rapidly became a kind of four-party process as it was, and we had to battle for it to be even a five-party process. 
to what then emerged more recently, which wasn't even a two-party process, in that the governments weren't even involved in that two-party process. It was literally just the DUP and Sinn Féin. And it doesn't work. Because actually, if people are locked into very fixed positions and they just repeatedly meet with each other to discuss those positions, there's no new thinking, there's no creativity, but there's also no opportunity to bring new um, issues or ideas to the table that could allow people to start to move their position. And so we have been really clear, even in this round of talks, how important it is that we open that up again and start to include not just the other parties, including ourselves, but actually the other assembly members. So when I hosted talks here back in October and at the start of the year, I invited every party that had representation in the assembly, regardless of size, and every independent MLA, because I believe that everyone has a vested interest and they represent groups of people in our community who do as well. And I think that there is an appreciation now that wasn't there over the last few years that we do need input from outside the political sphere in terms of um, input from the community sector, the voluntary sector, the churches um, and other organisations who have a genuine vested interest in society and how it works. The Assembly is a big part of that. The Assembly is a political institution, but it's more than that. It's also an institution that's meant to be reflective of wider society. And I think that there is an appreciation now for civic engagement and the importance of it as a way of dealing with complex and fraught issues that perhaps wasn't there before. I also think the emergence of the Citizens' Assembly in the South and how that negotiated through what was very sensitive work around, um, for example, termination of pregnancy um, and how they would deal with that, has led to a new appreciation of the fact that if civic engagement is properly structured, and if it isn't just simply a replication of the political views of the parties in proportion to party size, then it has something new to bring to the table. And I think that those two dynamics have actually helped put it back on the agenda for discussion. Because in fact, that's one of the issues, isn't it, about what is the purpose of engagement with civic society, that concerns by the two major parties are, well, the civic forum wasn't democratically accountable, it wasn't representative, whereas the citizens' assemblies are not trying to be that type of representative body, they're trying to be a mechanism by which you deal with difficult issues. But the, equally, the Civic Forum was never going to be, strictly speaking, representative, it was never going to be democratically accountable because it wasn't, it wasn't a decision-making body, it was a, it was a discussion forum. And I think that also led to frustrations for those engaged in the Civic Forum because it appeared to have more weight than in practice it did. Some people who were involved felt that it became a talking shop. They also felt that it was very much devalued by the fact that when they did come up with ideas or suggestions, politicians weren't engaged with that and didn't respect their opinions, just dismissed them, which of course, politicians have the right as elected representatives to dismiss views that they don't agree with or that they don't want. But it would be good if you're going to ask people to do a piece of work that you would at least respect the fact that it's been done. And so I think on both sides, there was this tension about what the purpose was. I think that the thinking, if you like, around engagement with, with society in general has changed in that time. I think people now are more focused on particular areas of work where it would make sense to engage with communities where there is that element of trying to work out where people stand on issues, where they're, 
you want to get a range of opinions. Um, but also, I think by focusing in that way at sort of almost joint design of, of how you want to move forward, it takes some of the pressure off politicians um, in a way that allows them to be facilitators of what the community want, as opposed to having to advocate for something that they might feel is unpopular or unwelcome. Um, and I think that that dynamic is also something that people are more aware of now than they were in the past. And it sounds as if the Alliance Party is saying within the talks process that it would like to see something like the Citizens' Assemblies in the South. Well, we, we would certainly want to see some form of civic engagement. We've been very poor at this. I mean, there have been a number of attempts um, take something like education um, and planning and so on, where there's meant to be this idea of co-design, where you sit down with the users of services and you're meant to go through civil service with them and, and so on. And then you talk to people afterwards and they say, well, we don't feel like what we said was taken on board. We feel like they came to us with a plan in their head and what they did with us was defend their choices as opposed to involve us in making the decisions. And so it has to be real. If the people who are going to do this are going to feel that there's value in it for them, it's got to be something where they feel they are making a difference. Equally, if those who are in the decision-making positions who have to actually drive processes and take decisions and make hard choices feel that people are coming along with unrealistic expectations of what's likely to be the outcome, um, then they're going to disengage. So it has to be something that's structured in a way that both sides feel that there's benefit. And I think that the Citizens' Assembly is one example of how that works. Um, I think there are other examples. I mean, there are examples where the Civic Forum worked quite well. There are some poor examples, I think, of how we've tried to engage in the past, um, where it has been um, through sort of public consultation meetings and so on, where those have been not, that the uptake in those has not reflected the strength of opinion um, that people actually had. And I think that there, it's important to try and find the right mechanisms, but also the right issues, because some issues are more easily dealt with in that for in that kind of format than others. And I think we just need to be realistic about that rather than raising expectations across the board as to how that's likely to, to pan out. Which leads us into the next question about how we create a more shared and integrated society. Well, I think that there are a number of things from our perspective. Um, obviously, we believe that, first of all, you have to want it. Um, it has to be a political decision that that's what you want to do. It has to be your ambition as you go through Every decision-making process you go through can't simply be in a silo. Um, it can't simply be one department's responsibility to create a changed society because that doesn't work. You've got to look at every decision that you make in government and you've got to look at how that decision will impact on the level of segregation or integration in our society, how it will impact on the ability of people to share their communities um, or not. And so that's one of the reasons why we have proposed having what we have called PASS, um, as a sort of policy appraisal for uh, sharing over separation, to look at every policy that's going through government and ask what will the impact of this be? And if it's going to enhance segregation, then what is the mitigation we're going to put in place um, to balance that out? So that's at the policy level in terms of actually wanting to see that implemented. I suppose at the other end, it's the practical stuff on the ground that makes a difference um, in terms of supporting communities, but also we need to look at how communities function Communities are like living organisms and there are some things we know about communities. Communities form, for example, around schools. So at sort of working age, people will cluster around schools where their children are attending 
um, and depending on the schools you will get different clusters of people in those areas. So we know that not only does integrated education change attitudes of the young people going through integrated education um, and affect the views and values of their parents, but also it creates clusters which are more mixed and integrated in terms of housing. And so there are things that you can do with your policy choices around education, around housing, around transport, um, which can start to change the way society functions. So we know, for example, that public transport is crucial, that people feeling safe, um, feeling that it's efficient and effective, but also knowing where it starts and stops. So, for example, more people now will travel east to west in the city because of the glider system because they know that they can get on the bus um, on the Falls Road, come to uh, the Upper Newton Arch Road or to Stormont or wherever it might be. It's one bus journey, there's no changes, there's no getting lost, they know where they're going to get off and then they can get back on the bus and go straight back and there's a sense of security and, uh, and safety in that. It's also simple and straightforward. And so what we have seen is people exploring areas outside their natural comfort zones. So to be able to do that, you've got to facilitate that movement of people around the city. Um, and I think that's important. And then the other part of it, I suppose, for us is creating shared space um, that is able to be used by everybody. Um, doesn't have to be neutral space, but it does have to be space that's open and welcoming to everyone. And by creating that and allowing people to come to that space and experience that positivity, they can then take those principles back into the communities in which they live. So there's a whole range of things that need to be done in terms of supporting um, an integrated and shared society, but I don't believe that all of them are political. So I think many of them involve people doing work on the ground and involve political decisions that will support the work that people do on the ground, which is why civic engagement matters, because it's not as simple as having a policy on a desk in an office in Stormont. It has to be something that communities are actually buying into, that they understand the benefits for the community and that they actually see it um, in terms of the rewards that it brings in local communities when we get a more shared and integrated society, because ultimately that will be one which is more prosperous, but also more secure and safe. I'm a bit confused now, I mean, because at the outset you said that it's got to be something that people want in yes. order to achieve, but I would have thought that you're going to say that neither the DUP nor Sinn Féin genuinely wants a shared society. Well, I mean, they would both say that they do, um, but... I would say that the evidence is to the contrary, so I tend to judge people by what they do, not by what they say. So how do you change that dynamic then? Well, I think the amount of energy that they've invested um, in, in peace building generally and in reconciliation, but also in integration and shared projects has been minimal. So I think one of the things that we need to do as part of the negotiations that we're engaged in at the moment is to ensure that things like integrated housing, um, integrated education, um, and those kind of practical measures that can be put in on the ground are dealt with. But also we need to be willing um, now, not just as the fifth largest party, but actually in some circumstances, certainly in the east of Northern Ireland, the third largest party in Northern Ireland to flex our muscle when it comes to saying that this is what people want, it's what the public demand. And so the parties may not like it, but if they believe that the electorate like it, they will be surprisingly um, open um, to delivering it because no political party will set its face against the electorate if they know that that ultimately is what the electorate wants. So the more people vote 
for parties that are in favour of sharing and integration, the more all parties will put that in their agenda. It's the Green Party's dilemma, for example, that when people start to vote Green, all the other parties appear to suddenly have an interest in the environment, and then people start to vote for those parties because what they really care about is the environment, not the party. Um, and so that's it's a, it's a similar dynamic. But what we're saying is, look, if people are voting Alliance, they're sending out a very strong message about the kind of society they want. And it would be foolish, I think, of Sinn Féin or the DUP to ignore that message. Um, so in many ways, by voting for Alliance in greater numbers than before, we have an opportunity to challenge um, at council, at assembly um, and beyond. But also we have an opportunity to push those parties towards um, more interest in creating shared society. But it has to be, it has to be a process that we engage with on a, on a regular basis. So when we're in talking about things like the programme for government, we're in there pushing for objectives um, in that programme for government that will cover issues around integration and sharing. I, I, I don't believe that other parties' heart may be in it to the same degree that it's the defining feature of Alliance and it's our most important objective. But if we can get that further up their agenda, if we can get that in a place where they can't avoid taking the action that's required, then we will see the outworking of that. And the people who really need to want it is the community. When you're talking about the flexing muscles, is there an opportunity to flex the financial muscles? Because the figure that you've quoted as a party is £1 billion a year wasted through duplication of resources because of the segregated society. Is that create an opportunity? Of course it does. And the, the difficulty, of course, with that is that none of it is unlocked cheaply either. And we have been very honest about that, that it is essentially an invest-to-save opportunity. But that's a, a very strong argument to take to Treasury. When you're actually going to go and make a pitch for additional funds, if you go to Treasury and say, well, we have a massive hole and we'd like you to plug it for a year, they're not going to be that enamoured by that proposal. But if you say to them, we have a massive hole here in our budget, but if you give us the money, we can spend it in a way that will fix that hole so in future years the hole will be smaller, they're going to be much more interested in investing in that project than they would be otherwise. And so I think there is an opportunity to look at the cost of division in our society. And some of those are hard financial costs of duplication um, of, of the violence and the extra policing and everything else that we require. Some of them are missed opportunity costs, things that we, we can't do and miss out on because um, of division. Um, I think it's really important that we look at all of those costs and see how do we minimise those. And as I say, one way is the policy level and the other way is by investing in order to restructure what we do. Um, we have a massive problem, for example, in the sustainability of our education system. That's clear. Um, and what isn't working is a whole series of vested interests um, having such sway over large chunks of the education estate and to different degrees being able to deal with things like reducing numbers um, and so on and amalgamation and all of those things. But there is an argument to say that if we do root and branch reform of our education system and actually look at what the requirements are and meeting the needs of people, that the default really could be integrated education in areas where we need new schools. And that way we, we, we do away with a lot of the overproliferation and the empty seats that we have had for many years. And we start to deal then with how do we deliver education which reflects the diversity of communities without needing a diverse number of schools. And I think that's the bigger challenge that we, we face. So from our perspective, um, I think it is about 
trying to do two things. It's about trying to show where the benefits come for society, but it's also about trying to say um, if we're able to unlock the money that's tied up um, with division. And I mean, the, the estimates vary. Everything from, I think, three quarters of a billion to about a billion and a half. So about a billion is probably reasonable. And that was a few years ago. I think if we look at that and say, what could we do with that money if we started to unlock even some of it each year? Um, then I think we would start to see opportunities where we could be reinvesting in communities and actually making a massive difference. And at a time when money is very, very tight um, in terms of the assembly and particularly in terms of long-term sustainability of a lot of our services, actually being able to look at the sustainability around segregation and say, well, let's, that's, one we can get, that's one we can get rid of um, that is costing us an ongoing um, cost. That, I think, to me, is a very attractive prospect. Now, you've spoken about the challenge of doing that. One of the other big challenges, how we deal with the past and the legacy issues. I mean, what's your solution approach to that? Well, I mean, this is, I think, for me, this is possibly the last chance we're going to have to do anything that looks anything like a comprehensive process with this. The alternative to going ahead with the Stormont House arrangements that were agreed um, is for us to end up in a situation where it's just ad hoc, if, if at all, being addressed. And I don't believe that that, in the long term, is good for society here. I also think we have to be honest with people about the prospects of justice being delivered at such a remove from the events of the time. I think we need to be realistic about how likely that is to happen and be honest with people about their expectations and what can and can't be achieved. But I think we need to leave the door open for justice to take its course. I think in a post-conflict society to expect people to draw a line at a certain date and say anything before that date, we will just ignore it. I don't think is good. I don't think it's good psychologically for a community emerging from conflict to believe that what went on before should be ignored. But I also don't think that it's good in terms of setting the precedent for the future, in terms of what justice looks like in, in society, in modern society. So I think we have to leave the door open that if new evidence emerges, that if new information comes forward and is found, the prosecutions can continue. But I, I think realistically justice is only one element of it. I think there's a whole wider element about reconciliation, um, about acknowledgement, um, of the pain that people have suffered about respect for that pain and often people are very poor at respecting some pain and you know as opposed to others and it's not just about as people sort of that hackneyed phrase of there being a hierarchy of victims but in some ways too there can be a bit of a hierarchy of sympathy and that people can't even empathize with those um, from different parts of the community who also lost family, maybe in very different circumstances, but nevertheless feel that human pain of, of their loss. And then I think there's the practical element of it. There is what do we do for those people who, who lost loved ones, who themselves were seriously injured, who suffered psychological trauma, um, and who are living with the impact of that today? What are the services we put in place? What is the support that we give to people? As the pensions issue is, is, a, is a big issue in terms of giving people dignity and independence as they grow old with very complex disabilities as a result of, 
of, of the conflict. And so I think we need to do all of those things, but I think we need to do it with integrity and with honesty. I think if we overpromise and underdeliver, people will feel very cheated. I think if we are, if we attempt in any way to interfere with due process around these issues, I think that will also cause huge frustration with people. Um, we saw that with things like the OTR letters and other things where people felt that there was an interference, that there was opaqueness in what government were doing and so on, and they, they genuinely felt that they had been cheated of justice and denied the right to, to pursue their cases. And I think that that has a very embittering a, a kind of impact on, on families. So I think it's important that we make sure that people have transparency about what can and can't be done, that we're honest about the likelihood of that bringing resolution, but that we also invest in the support around that to make sure that people can move, not move on from their loss, but move beyond it, to live a life beyond it, and to have an experience beyond it that isn't entirely consumed with what happened in their past. Because one of the really sad things that has happened as a result of the troubles and all the circumstances around non-investigation um, or the lack of transparency over what happened or not knowing where the bodies were, were abandoned and all those other things is that people have never really got to the point where they have been able to properly grieve. And part of grieving is the recovery and the moving on with your life, albeit that it's a very changed life. There are many people still suspended at that point where they've not got beyond that initial shock and grief. And we need to do all that we can to try to assist people to get beyond that point. Because if we don't, that becomes an intergenerational problem that will still cast a shadow over the next generation coming through. Um, so I think, I think personally, the Stormont House Agreement is like any other set of arrangements. It is imperfect. Um, but I think it is the best that we are going to do. Um, and I think if we don't do it now, we won't do it at all. And I think not doing it at all would be much worse. So that would be a five-stage process, if I hear correctly, which is open process, Stormont House, pensions for victims, uh, counselling services for people with continuing trauma, and adequate investment into social care for dealing with people as they deal with their own injuries as they get older. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the issues, for example, around the pensions, um, and I mean, I've met with the severely injured group, and there's a lot of work obviously being done on that in terms of scoping and so on, but one of the issues with people for example who have had amputations it's just the ongoing nature of that people who often when people are amputees they're much older um it'll be as a result of an illness or whatever it will come with age and so it's a it's a one-off thing for a lot of these people they lost limbs as teenagers or as young people and they are now in a situation where they're having to live with that and they're getting into their 40s, their 50s, their 60s um, and they're caring for what were very old amputations. They're having to have further surgery, wear and tear on their joints because they move differently than they would otherwise have moved and all of those things. And just the indignity of having to go and ask for a new wheelchair or new adjustments to their property and have to make the case and the re-traumatisation that it causes for them to have to talk through how they got to that point to me being able to provide for them financially through something like a pension 
that allows them to afford to care for their own needs without having to give that repeated explanation all the time and just let them live out their lives with some degree of comfort. Also looking at people who became carers for someone who was injured severely during the Troubles weren't able to work as a result of that um, or lost their husband or wife and ended up being the kind of main carer in the family and weren't working because of that. That will have impacts on them when they go to draw their pension, when they move into old age and they find that suddenly their entitlements are less than they might otherwise have been. And we need to find ways of making sure that people are not disadvantaged in that way that we can try to support as best we can um, people to be able to live in some degree of comfort um, in, their, in their final years. Because I think, I think we owe it to people as a society to be able to try and make their, their life as comfortable as it can be, um, given the trauma that they've already been through. So we need to look at all of those issues, I think, quite sensitively. I think that there are wider issues at the moment that are being debated, obviously around prosecutions and so on, and we've heard all the debate about um, statute of limitations and so on, but that's not something that I would support. I, I simply believe, I don't support amnesty, um, I don't support a statute of limitations because I believe that I believe it would ultimately lead to an amnesty. I think justice would prevail, and if you're going to give some people a buy ball on these issues, it'd have to apply to everybody across the board. But I also don't think it does justice to the fact that a lot of people who serve in the military didn't do anything wrong. And I think that there's a huge amount of hurt that would be created by the statute of limitations that people don't perhaps appreciate from those who never broke the law when they served, but who feel that they would be in some way smeared by that approach to suggest that they did operate outside or above the law when they didn't. And so I think that all of those issues are hugely sensitive and I think it's important um, that what we agreed at Stormont House with all party input, um, I think it's important that that goes forward um, and is properly implemented and properly funded because ultimately we cannot expect the police of today um, to foot the bill for the policing of the past because they have the present to police. And I think if it gets to a point where the, the funding isn't forthcoming for, for the historic inquiries part of it, then we will really have a difficult problem because I think to just take that out of the current day policing budget isn't realistic um, and won't gain public support. So the last of these difficult questions, Naomi, is how do we deal with the constitutional question without inflaming issues and people and communities? Well, I think there are a couple of things. I think the Good Friday Agreement set out a structure within which it would be addressed. And we're sitting in a building that's supposed to house one of those structures Storm, in the assembly. Um, and, and yet it's not functional. But the anticipation in the Good Friday Agreement was that at some point, if the Secretary of State felt there was going to be a change, if there was a referendum. So the premise is you don't call a referendum unless you're expecting the vote to be yes. And I, I think the reason for that's quite sound because otherwise you would end up with a war of attrition with referendum after referendum caught in this suspended animation. And we've seen what happens when you have a referendum that's narrowly won or lost, how difficult it can be after that point to, to kind of manage people's expectations. We've seen the impact it's had on UK politics with Brexit. It has been a shambles. And so I think the if you like the test that was put in there to say 
there needs to be a vote um, at a point where we think there is a, a convincing majority in favour so that we believe that that would be the outcome. But it was always anticipated that that referendum would take place with fully functioning structures, with North, South and East, West bodies functioning, with the British, Irish intergovernmental conference working, with the North, South ministerial council meetings happening, with the Northern Ireland Assembly fully functional, with, as it was then, the Civic Forum fully operational. The anticipation was that we would be working together, North, South, East, West, within Northern Ireland, political and community all connected so that those conversations would be happening against the backdrop of established relationships, confidence, trust, that it wouldn't be a conversation happening in a febrile environment where people were, you know, divided already, segregated in terms so of... So are you saying there should be a lock that if those institutions aren't working, the trigger wouldn't take place? I'm not saying there should be a lock. I'm saying that's what was anticipated in the agreement. And it makes sense in that context that you could have that conversation and debate and discussion. The theoretical, what if it happened? How would it look? How would it function? How would it work? That's a conversation that you can have much more easily with people that you're engaging with every day as part of your regular process than it is when it's thrown into, as it is at the moment, into the mix of a completely chaotic situation around Brexit, a lot of fear, a lot of concern about the future, then it's seen as though the, the, the suggestion of a United Ireland is a way out of that, is trying to bounce people into a decision when the other decision hasn't actually been settled yet. And so I think that the context for having that discussion is like every other sensitive discussion, really important. I think you can have the conversation, and this is part of the discussion I've been having with others, I think you can have that conversation about what would a United Ireland look like? What would the place be for those who are unionists? Or those who would maybe not necessarily say they're unionists, but British? I mean, part of my identity is British, so how would that be reflected in, in any kind of new Ireland situation, how would that work? But it also can't be a conversation that only takes place, for example, with Sinn Féin as a political party because they're not a majority stakeholder in the Republic of Ireland or in Northern Ireland. They are a large party in Northern Ireland, but um, they're not by any means the most influential of the parties in terms of what any new shaping of the, the society would look like. So that debate needs to be happening on a much broader base if that conversation is going to happen. It can't just happen between individual political parties in Northern Ireland who kind of use the constitutional question as a stick to beat each other with. So who has responsibility for mapping out what a... There isn't anybody who has responsibility. Who well, I guess it is about political leadership, at least in part. Um, I think that it's a... It's kind of a fraud question because before the presumption would have been that it was the Irish government's rule, but the Irish government, um, in terms of its constitutional claim to Northern Ireland, has sort of changed its position. And whilst it doesn't claim to be neutral on the issue, it's also not seen to be advocating strongly for any, for any change. 
it's a matter for the people of Northern Ireland how the conversation takes place because the decision is ultimately theirs and the Good Friday Agreement it's for the people of Northern Ireland to decide how they want to go forward and so ultimately it's a matter for them how they frame the question. I think there's been some quite interesting examples of engagement around it. I mean it's a debate that's I think much more live at the moment because of Brexit um, that, than it has been for a long time. I think the settled will was much clearer when the assembly was sitting, um, when society was slightly more functional and before Brexit happened. I think that the upending of those old certainties of of Brexit itself posing a threat to Northern Ireland, I think the assembly not sitting, has raised questions in people's minds as to where Northern Ireland's best interests are suited and, and best fit in the long term and I think that's it, that question has been raised in people's minds not just those who would have been traditionally nationalist in their aspirations but actually people who would have been more naturally unionist in their aspirations but who have started to question actually is the decision being taken within the UK in Northern Ireland's best interest and that's a question that was very rarely ever asked before. Um, so I think for that reason, the conversation has happened in all sorts of different places. We're part of that conversation. It happens within the Alliance Party. It happens between the Alliance Party and other parties. We have engaged in that. So when I've been asked to go along and speak um, podcasts and do other things, I'm engaging in that conversation because I don't think having the conversation in itself should be a threat to anyone. Um, but I am clear that I don't believe this is the right time for a referendum and I don't believe that the context is right at this point in time because I don't first of all see that the test in the Good Friday Agreement has been met um, in terms of I don't see when you look at all of the polling I don't see that there is a, national, a, a clear nationalist majority um, in Northern Ireland and so I don't think that that test has been met and more importantly I think that our focus at the moment primarily needs to be on addressing the Brexit issue which is the biggest and most urgent challenge that we face um, and I would say that if we can deal with that and getting the assembly structures restored then we're in a position um, where we can have the, the wider debate and discussion as to what happens next. And to complete the circle it sounds as if you are thinking that at least part of that conversation needs to be led by civic society. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it can be just led by politicians. I think if Sinn Féin, for example, raised the issue of a united Ireland, it will get the knee-jerk eye-roll from other sections of society. I don't think that Sinn Féin's vision for a united Ireland is one that a lot of unionists and indeed a lot of nationalists would necessarily want to buy into. Um, I think that equally... Um, if you have the discussion, unionist parties will feel the need to defend the union, where unionist people might be open to having a discussion about what a united Ireland might look like if the defence of the union doesn't, doesn't win the day. So I think that some of that civic society conversation can be had in, in a, at a different level, where it's not a political threat to anyone, but it's actually exploring relationships. I think one of the sad things for me about Brexit is that Actually, relationships were what led to the Good Friday Agreement. It wasn't um, simply about the politics. It was a lot of it was about the fact that Britain and Ireland were 
in the European Union together. They needed to work together. They got to know each other in the corridors um, and doing their business on a daily basis. And for that reason, the, the hostility between the two governments couldn't practically continue. And so they came together, first of all, with the Anglo-Irish Agreement and then beyond that in the Good Friday Agreement. But there was a sense that London and Dublin were on the same page, certainly when it came to Northern Ireland, that they were, they were trying to be on the same page and that they would try and assist us to sort out our, our problems. And so I think one of the saddest things about Brexit is to see at so many levels London and Dublin not on the same page but on opposite sides of the table and that will continue when the UK becomes a third party and Dublin remains uh, and Ireland remains in the EU is they won't be on the same page of course they'll still cooperate they still have a vested interest in terms of Northern Ireland's future the operation of the border and all the rest of it but it suddenly becomes so much more difficult than it needs to be because I, I ultimately think that that relationship east-west is as important in terms of stability as the relationships we have with each other within Northern Ireland. I think when that relationship east-west became civil and even warm at times, it made it a lot easier um, for us to solve our problems in Northern Ireland. And I think the cooling of that relationship has had, I think, really quite profound effects on how our parties locally have been able to interact and engage with each other. There are lots of other complicated dynamics around it, obviously, in terms of people's relative positions within the governments and everything else. But I think there's something fundamental there about those relationships. And I think that if we were able to get to the point where we had the UK and Irish governments on the same page again, I think it would go a long way to resolving our issues. Um, but I agree, it can't just be a political conversation. Civic society has to have a say has to have an influence and an input, and perhaps that is the best place for the conversation to start, rather than be led by politicians who will automatically deal with it in a confrontational space. Okay, that was your conversation with Naomi. On dealing with the past, Naomi's saying that this might be our last chance to deal with this in any uh, coherent or concrete way. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone has said to me in these conversations that they think Stormont House is perfect. Mm. But I mean, what Naomi is saying, and she's not the only one who said it, is, you know, it's as good as we're going to get now. Yeah. And, you know, it's our, our best last chance, if you like. And she's also saying very clearly she does not believe there should be an amnesty to anyone. And she's saying that if there is an amnesty, then that creates a very bad example, a principal precedent for the future. Yeah, but that one of the things we, we need to talk about is maybe honesty of getting what the traditional justice might be given the time that has passed and stuff like that, that whilst we can't ignore the past, we must leave the door open as well. Yeah, and, and we heard that in one of the previous conversations where we were talking with Philip Gilliland, who was talking at, at, at considerable uh, length about this principle that mm. actually you know, we need to balance these things, but we can't uh, assume that we can actually achieve something called justice. And what Naomi is saying here is that we we must not mislead uh, victims' families into believing that something is possible that is practically impossible. Yeah, okay. And then the constitutional question. She talks about the Good Friday Agreement. Has the structure to deal with this? That's right. And she's saying, you know, go back to the Good Friday Agreement. That's where it is. Uh, what she's also saying, though, is that as we move forward to have that conversation, that the conversation, as I read what she's saying, it can't be led by politicians. It yeah. needs to be led by civil society. 
and you know there clearly has to be a role and what she's also said which a number of people have said which I don't think Sinn Féin accepts but what a number of people have said is that to have a balanced conversation an open conversation it cannot be led by Sinn Féin it has to be led by a broader part of the community uh, coming at things from different points of view but you know the Republican nationalist position can't be seen to be simply that of Sinn Féin otherwise you're not going to have the type of inclusive conversation that's needed. Okay and again Brexit and I suppose that's part of that wider reflection is look what happened in Brexit when we just started talking. And the other thing which I don't think we should lose which Naomi said and which we have touched on before in these podcasts is the cost of segregation yeah. and now and this touches on brexit as well you know the waste of money within our economy and she's saying well you know the figures that she's working from it costs us each year between 750 million and 1.5 billion pounds to have a segregated society and she's saying let's use that money on an invest to save basis invest in our society break down the cost of segregation and then we can have you know a better health service a better education service and can invest for our economic future okay well good point to stop there thanks to naomi for taking the time to meet with paul thanks to our production team of d kern emer doherty and jacqueline mckay keep an eye out for future episodes of the forward together podcast from wherever you get your podcast app and thank you for listening Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland supports this podcast through its media grant scheme and core funding programme.